Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hello, Darren. Well, it's Thursday, the 5th of November today, and we're doing a bit of an emergency episode to discuss the election in the United States, of course. In the past few hours, we've seen the state of Michigan being called for Joe Biden. And so while Vice President Biden doesn't have the 270 electoral college votes that he needs to claim victory. He is already ahead in two states, Arizona and Nevada, which if he gets those two states would get him across the top. And he's also expected to win Pennsylvania quite easily once all the mailed ballots are counted. He may also even win the state of Georgia. Now, having said all that, the GOP looks like it's held on to the Senate and with the only pathway to the Democrats getting 50 Senate seats is to win both of the runoff elections in Georgia that will happen in January. Moreover, the GOP also recaptured a handful of House seats that it lost in the 2018 midterms, though the Democrats will maintain control of the lower house of Congress. Now, the Trump campaign has filed lawsuits seeking to stop the counting of these ballots, but no one really expects them to go anywhere. Look, establishment Republicans seem pretty pleased with the outcome, and you can argue it was the best possible outcome for them. They got rid of Trump, but maintained the power to neutralize the Biden presidency through their control of the Senate, and of course, through a strong majority on the Supreme Court as well. So I can't see them really supporting Trump in his efforts to undermine this outcome, though of course the transition over the next few months could well be bumpy. Voting was free of violence, and while there have been some protesters who are seeking to stop the vote now, from this vantage point, 2.45 in the afternoon here in Australia, because I'm actually back in Australia, I should mention, under quarantine, it really could have been worse. And look, Trump may make it worse in the, the days ahead, but when you read between the lines of his tweets over the past few hours, it does seem like he realises that he has lost. So Alan, a quick question to start with, how are you feeling about it all? As the Duke of Wellington was reported to have said after the Battle of Waterloo, it was a damned close run thing and too, <laughs> too damned close for me. I didn't have, I have to confess, I didn't have the emotional resilience to sit there for uh, hours yesterday afternoon, although we in Australia are in a very good position to observe all of this. So, you know, I ended up switching between the state of origin and CNN and ended the night sort of a bit more optimistic than I'd been because I really do think the stakes were for Australia and for the world and for the United States were enormously high. Mm, yeah, so I got back, we flew back from Lebanon and arrived on Tuesday night Australia time and we're currently in, I guess, day two, finishing off day two of quarantine. So I had the perfect opportunity to follow the election and I spent the entire time on Twitter, didn't watch any television or listen to anything. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? You just, the you whole thing was consumed through Twitter. Yep. Yeah. I have a, a list of people I follow who are the election experts, and I was just 
following, you know, whether it's Nate Silver of 538, Nate Cohen of the New York Times, the Economist guy, the Washington Post guy, people like that. And so that was my experience. Does that make it more or less emotionally draining? So I was emotionally drained by it. I mean, the first results that came through of any meeting were Florida and they were bad and they stayed bad. And I, as someone who wanted a big repudiation of Trump and Trumpism, I immediately realized that wasn't going to happen and started you know, comprehending or apprehending the possibility that he might win. So yes, I think it was it was just as bad. And look, as the night progressed and it looked like Biden's vote was holding up in the Midwest, I started to feel a bit better, but I was definitely deflated. And then when I woke up this morning and saw that it looked like Trump had lost, I started to feel much more optimistic because I realized that the two worst possible outcomes had been avoided. One, a clear Trump victory, and two, a murky result that caused a constitutional crisis of some kind, you know, with violence on the streets and the result ultimately being delivered by the Supreme Court. And even if Biden had won, where there was major questions of legitimacy that persisted, that was a, a real fear of mine. And so we have a Biden victory. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we needed, as you pointed out, Alan. Yeah, the point you were making, for me, one of the important sort of second order, you know, realisations as the voting has gone on is that systemically it coped much better than I feared it would and that obviously many Americans feared it would as well. But the process seems to have been quicker and the local officials and state officials who are in charge of it seem to have done their jobs with the sort of diligence that we'd expect here from electoral officers. So that was an encouraging thing as well. And I think that speed, that diligence meant that what should have been or could have been the the most important moment of the night, which was Trump's press conference, which he gave at, I think, 2.30 in the morning, local time in the US, where he did essentially claim victory claimed that his supporters were being disenfranchised by the mere fact that votes were being mailed in and counted, like legally cast votes were being counted. That was what he'd been signalling he was going to do for months. It was a clear authoritarian attempt to undermine the election. And then he invites Mike Pence, his vice president, to come on after him. Pence doesn't say any of the same things, you know, gives a very presidential sounding, you know, normal orthodox response. And the network TV commentary just says this is full of rubbish he is an authoritarian there's no legal basis and really the air had already been sucked out of his sails the momentum was gone and within a few hours he was behind in arizona and, and that was basically it so look it still mm. could get bad but yeah it was conducted well and i think by the time trump had the first opportunity to really cause mischief you know it was already over i think that the results may end up showing biden achieving a relatively comfortable victory in the electoral college and indeed a very large popular vote victory. But I think it was still a very close election. It's likely that we're going to have over 70 million Americans who cast their vote for Trump and he comfortably won many states that were potentially in play, whether that's Texas and Florida down south, Ohio in the Midwest. And so, as I said from the outset, we don't have a a fulsome repudiation of Trump and Trumpism. And we have massive failures in the polling. I was asked, I guess, on the record in an event last week what I thought was going to happen. And I said Trump would need a polling error 
even larger than the one that happened in 2016 to win. And he almost got that. You know, there were polls that had Biden up by 18 points or something in Wisconsin, and he's going to win it by 10, 15, 20, you know, not that many votes. So, look, I think there's a lot that we still don't understand that the media and that pundits and that any everyone observing doesn't understand about Trump voters and what motivates them. And that resulted in a close call in this case. Yeah, look, I, it was another reminder if we need reminder, but I think Australians do quite, from time to time, of just how complicated and cross-cutting the American system is. We think about Trump voters in one category, but there were African-American Trump voters. There was lots of Hispanic mm. Trump voters. The pattern across the country, apart from the sort of the east and west coasts, is county by county. And that's, I think, something that we lose sight of a bit in Australia. People obviously vote for different reasons. The complete failure of the pollsters, again, I personally blame them because I thought they could they I, I thought they couldn't be this wrong again because they had such a vested interest in getting it right, such a vested commercial interest in getting it right. And so the changes that they had made to their methodology must have been better. Seems not. Although just before the end I was listening to Nate Silver being interviewed and saying that the chance of Trump winning was about twelve percent under his methodology, which was about the same as flipping a coin and getting tails three times in a row. Mm. And I thought, oh, that can happen. Mm. So, <laughs> And I think if it wasn't for COVID-19, I think it's likely Trump would have won. And this yeah. is something I didn't believe a year ago. I mean, yeah. we, were, we know that incumbents are hard to defeat historically and that the economic fundamentals pre-pandemic you know, were very strong for Trump. But if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have said, with all of his character flaws, with all of the governance failures that we knew about already, with all the corruption on display, the vulgarity, the cruelty, all of which we knew all too well before the pandemic, I would have said that's enough to defeat him, especially with someone like Biden on the ticket, who offered normality, who offered safety to American voters. And despite all these things, and then despite a horrific pandemic that was horrifically managed by him, you still have more people voting for him in the 2020 election than voted for him in the 2016 yeah. election. Yep. Now, he still lost, yeah. but that's a remarkable yeah. fact. And so you, you wonder if he had even displayed a hint of empathy and some policy competence in managing the pandemic, given how well incumbents seem to have done around the world in elections in the last few months, you have to think he would have won. And I'm still grappling with that fact, and I think I will be for a long time. Yeah. And then it, well, I think the other thing that jumped out at me was there was one down-ballot result that was quite emblematic, I think, of the direction of US politics, which was in Florida, which voted for Trump, I think, by about three points in the end, and it's historically one of those bellwether states. But there was a down-ballot initiative for a minimum wage raise to $15 an hour, and this is a, a national-level issue. It's one that Republicans have consistently been against you know, because it, it does fly in the face of much economic orthodoxy. If you raise the minimum wage, you make it harder to employ, and that can, can stifle businesses. But it passed. It needed 60% of the vote to pass, and it did. And so you've got many, many Trump voters 
who are comfortable with historically left-leaning, you might even say populist left-type policies, even though they're voting for Trump and everything he represents. And Yes, so- that's the point at which they come together with the sort of Bernie Sanders voters on the other side. So reminded that there's something very strange going on in the sort of structure of the political system. Mm, mm. Well, Alan, if we zoom out now, you know, we've talked in the lead up to the election about what this means for Australia, but having seen events unfold and assuming Biden does win, surely you know, we can be happy about this for Australia's place in the world? It's a great relief for Australia. <laughs> I really do think that if we'd had another four years of Donald Trump the US position in the world and therefore Australia's interests would have been seriously harmed. I know there are some people around who thought that because Trump quite liked us or hadn't bashed us up as hard as other US allies and would be sort of a bit beefier on China, he was going to be better for us. I think that's a very, very limited view. So I think, yes, the Biden administration, simply by functioning in a more normal pattern, by having people that we can go to at all levels of government to, you know, pursue our interests will be better for us. You know, we, we talk about a Trump administration, but in fact, there hasn't been a Trump administration. There's just been a Trump. Hmm. The people in the intervening positions have been there for such a short period of time, dependent so much on the sort of moods and will of the president Mm. for their position that it's been like a European, you know, 17th century court rather than an administration. So uh, Biden administration will be better than that. The people that they're talking about, the senior positions in government, including Leo Brainard in in Treasury, well-known to Australia, there are reams of uh, people in Washington think tanks waiting to go back into <laughs> into into government, and all of them have had nothing to do for the past four years except chat to Australian embassy <laughs> and other people. So they'll be pretty well known. But look, it won't be easy. We're not going back to the world that we knew under Obama or even Bush. The US, as we've been talking about, is different. The world is different even from what it was four years ago. And the Democratic Party is different too. There's a different sort of balance of interests there, as you can see in the weight that Biden is putting on climate change, for example, where he seems to be channeling Kevin Rudd in, you know, saying that this is the core issue of our time and on which everything, uh, everything depends. So there are going to be new pressures on us in areas like climate change. On China, there'll, as many people have said, be continuity in Biden's approach from that of Trump. China will continue to be a strategic competitor for the United States. All the economic demands that Trump's made, I think, will be sort of reinforced by Biden. But in addition to that, on a number of multilateral issues, including climate change, and some regional issues, including North Korea, Biden is going to want to deal with China. So there'll be, Mm. I think, a consistent pattern of talking between the two great powers across the Pacific than we've seen. One of the implications of that for Australia is that our complete absence of dialogue with Beijing at present is going to become even more marked when Mm. we're going to have the 
avenues into Chinese thinking that the US will have. And look, in some of those areas where the US will be pressing, we are a competitor mm. with the US, some of those economic areas as well. So I think that will be important. So look, you know, he'll rejoin WHO, he'll rejoin the Paris Agreement. On the WTO, he'll try and make it work effectively again. So there'll be a lot of good news for Australia there. But underlying it all, the principal point of continuity between Trump and Biden will be on domestic policy. And this gets back to your, you know, mm. your own key interest. Biden's foreign policy for the middle class is really just America first with, you know, better administration mm. and sharper aims. But the same thing. I mean, it's Biden has made it absolutely clear that he knows that this has all got to work mm. for a domestic constituency. Yeah, thanks, Alan. I agree with all that. We're just one rider. And it comes down to the Iran nuclear deal, I think. I mean, the damage to US credibility to uphold its agreements was so significant when Trump pulled out. And I had hoped that a massive repudiation, a landslide victory might have helped to restore the US's credibility or its image on, on this front. But given it was such a close run thing, the countries of the world are going to have to factor in the possibility that a Trump or, you know, if he runs again in 2024 or a Trump-like character could return to the White House. And so trust in, in, yeah. in the long-term durability of US agreements is still going to be weak. And that has consequences, I think, that aren't good for Australia and that we will have to also manage. Yeah, I agree, Darren. I mean, once trumped, twice shy. And the world is, is going to remember that this can happen. On the Middle East, by the way, he will try and get back into the Iran nuclear deal. But, you know, the there'll be a lot of hostility from the Israelis and from some of the Arabs to efforts by Biden to undo all this. So, you know, although we might want him to focus on the Indo-Pacific, the Middle East and Europe, where Biden has said that Russia is the principal threat to the United States and will want to rebuild relationships with the EU and NATO and Latin America. He was, of course, the Obama administration point person on Latin America and if for no other reasons than those Hispanic voters, he's going to want to give a lot of attention to his own backyard as well. Looking longer term then, I think the thing that is interesting to me that I'll be watching in the months ahead, but for what it means for the years ahead, are what I see as two looming civil wars inside both the Democratic and Republican parties. In the Democrats, you've sort of got the Bernie AOC wing versus the, the Biden centrist wing. But of course, Biden is so old that he doesn't represent the future of the party. He was always just a placeholder, a promise of a return to normalcy, to let everyone take a breath, but we don't know what comes after him. And I do wonder, given the scale of Trump's success, even though he lost in this election, how that's going to play into the Democratic intra-party battle. You know, can an agenda that's driven a strongly progressive agenda, a Bernie AOC type agenda, win in places like Florida and Texas? Can it maintain the hold of the blue wall across the Midwestern states that have just delivered Biden victory, you know, can it make those voters feel safe? And so I think the candidate 
for our listeners, I think, to watch into the future, who might, for me, is the early favorite other than incoming Vice President Kamala Harris, is Sherrod Brown, who is the current senator for Ohio, a state that you know Biden has just lost by eight or nine points. He's managed to buck the trend of democratic failure in that state for a long time because he has a really good mix of populist left economic policies, but with a sensibility on the cultural and social front that doesn't alienate voters. He'll be in his early 70s by 2024, but I think he could be a real candidate to watch. And of course, you've got my dream candidate, Michelle Obama, but you know, I think that remains uh, a pipe dream. And then on the Republican side, you've got the future of Trumpism. You know, What is Trumpism without Trump? Trump's numbers, his approval rating barely moved over the course of the campaign. You know, his support base was rock solid. And he didn't even run on a specific campaign platform with specific policies. It was just No, 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 no Republican platform. A pure distillation yeah. of Trump. I heard the the Vox writer Jane Coaston call it more of this but louder as his pitch. <laughs> and that really is true identity politics, mm. isn't it? I mean, Trump's supporters support him because he fights for them. He fights against Democrats, no matter the outcomes. They don't don't seem to mind. And on that note, Alan, you sent me a really interesting podcast from Sam Harris about what motivates Trump supporters. Do you want to describe what Harris's point was? Yeah, no, it was interesting. Sam Harris, who's a sort of a a neuroscientist and philosopher who also, you know, big in the... um, meditation as a meditation app mm. called waking up but he also has an interesting podcast he'd been pondering he said for the past four years how anyone could possibly vote for a person who he found so obnoxious and repugnant in mm. almost every ways and and right at the end of this period just before the election he says that he finally worked out what it was, and he has a sort of theological interpretation of Trump's role in the lives of Trump supporters that I won't try and explain, but we can put the podcast mm. on the, it's only eight minutes long, on the show notes. But I found it uh, unusually useful way of thinking about Trump voters. Trump as the validator of the lives of so many people. Anyway, it's very good. But as I was listening to it and trying to keep my mind open and say, yes, these are, I'm sure, very good people, I was trying to think of any comparative Trump-supporting organisation which was telling its own readers, here is to understand a Biden voter. You need to reach out and understand what these (laughs) these people are uh, are on about. So I think the divisions, as we began by saying, remain very deep in the society. Yeah, I I really recommend this. It's only eight minutes long. And and the word that he uses that jumped out at me was sanctimony, that Trump voters see the left side of politics as holding themselves as being better than they are. You know, that you are racist, you are a bigot, you are a sexist, you are Islamophobic, you're transphobic, you're everything phobic. You're a bad person. And that Trump allows them not to feel shame about themselves like gives them space to to have integrity and dignity despite their imperfections and because he himself yeah and the point he's making is that trump is so obviously like them himself only worse <laughs> that you 
know, you can uh, say this guy is the president of the United States, and yet he's yeah. like this. It must be, must be. A yeah, and it actually links to a column I remember sending you, Alan, from Dan Dresner, who's a political scientist, making the point that we academics have long assumed that in our models of politics that politicians want to win re-election, and to win re-election they have to provide things for their supporters. They have to provide material benefits and outcomes and then incompetence is punished. And that doesn't seem to be the case. Trump's voters are no better off, you know, in any real material sense than they were four years ago, other than the economy doing a little bit better before the virus. And they don't care, right? They just, it's pure identity politics. Mm. He validates them, he gives them dignity, mm. and the, the left just gives them sanctimony. And I saw a column from the New York Times columnist a few hours ago where he sort of says, you know, Trump supporters are racist, and yes, there are African-Americans who voted for him, but they've been captured by the white patriarchy, like not denying any agency to these voters entirely. And he might yeah, be right, but yeah. you're not going to persuade these people by telling them that they're racist and taking their agency away from them. Mm. Anyway, so that's the, that's the civil war inside the Republican Party because that political support base is so strong mm. and it, it really stands against the old Paul Ryan, you know, George W. Bush orthodoxy balanced budgets and you know lower taxes and and muscular intervention abroad and so you know i think republican politicians are feeling great today you know it's been a good outcome for them but there is a lot of pain ahead once trump tv starts up and he you know he starts giving opinions on on everything you know every gop politician is going to have to go and kiss his ring in order to get elected and that is going to make things very difficult Anyway, my point yeah. here, populism is... Or, or else take him mm, yeah. mm. And, yeah, I think populism is alive and well, you know, and the sentiments that gave rise to negative globalism are alive and well. So, anyway, that's all for me today, Alan. Do you have any, any last comments? No, you know, I'm looking forward to the next four years of podcasts more than I was at certain periods last <laughs> night, though, Darren. So, <laughs> that's good. All right, well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank AIIA intern Mitchell McIntosh for his help with research and audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you and talk to you again soon.